Good morning, Woodland Hills. My name is Dan Kent. I was kind of daydreaming a little bit there, so I'm, I'm, I, I got my attention back just in time. But uh, hey, I, I was just talking to Kevin. It's, it's neat when he does announcements because he's up here talking, and then you hear his voice on the bumper, and it's, uh, you know, we can never get enough Kevin. That's what, I, that's what I say. But I, you know, this is the first time since I've been on staff here that uh, we've had some budget issues. And uh, one of the things that I appreciate is that this church does not obsess about money. And uh, it doesn't shame people into giving, and I just, I love that so much because uh, I assume, and, I, and Woodland Hills assumes, that people are doing their best and they're trying to help because we're doing good things here. We have so many great ministries and we serve the community in so many ways, and, and, and we just trust that people want to help. But even then, I think we all need reminders like, hey, you got to check your finances here because it's where, where you have a shortfall. And right now, in particular, you know, inflation is so crazy right now, and, and that's putting a pinch on a lot of people. I mean, I go to the gas station, and it takes me a moment, is that the jackpot power number, or is that the price of gas? Like, okay, that's, okay, it takes a, a moment there. And, um, and so, so we need these reminders to say, hey, uh, we need to check our, our giving, because even though we're all feeling that pressure of the inflation right now, um, the ministries need that just as much uh, because we minister to people who, who have less than us usually and they feel the pinch of inflation even more. And so a lot of times in, in times of high inflation, giving is actually more important. And so for me, I set up automated giving and there's something really great about that because then I just give and I don't have to think about it. But the problem is, is that we're supposed to think about it. We're supposed to think about our resources. And so I appreciate uh, campaigns like this that remind me, hey, Dan, you got to check to see where you're at and where you're given. And uh, so definitely this is something that I'm going to do personally as well. Um, you know, the, uh, I had two more jokes here about inflation. I, I forgot them. <laughs> Darn it. <clears throat> I'm going to share them because these are good. Uh, the first one is, I don't know about you, but I've even started to get uh, uh, credit card offers for pre-declined credit cards. I, I, man, that's, I, I hope you can still afford to pay attention. <clears throat> All right, that's, that's the end of our humor portion of the show. Uh, Greg is sick. The, the plan was to have Greg here, not me. And he, he, you know, he did that series a few weeks ago about finding Christ in suffering. And this guy keeps finding new creative ways to find Christ because he got pummeled by this uh, respiratory virus and, and he's been in bed and coughing and, and so yeah, he's sick. He, he called me uh, Friday morning asking, hey, uh, can, you, can you fill in this weekend? And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll fill in. I meant to say no. That's what I meant to say because that's just not a lot of time there. So in all seriousness, um, if, if anybody here could just pray for me while I'm going through this, this is a little loosey-goosey, but I think it's really important. And um, I, I had no idea what I was going to preach because I wasn't planning on preaching this weekend. And I just, as I put this together, I just feel like it's really, really important. And I, I don't know if, I'm not saying that God got Greg sick, but uh, I'm just saying <laughs> it feels like I need to share this. And so I, I hope it hits uh, like I hope it will. We're doing this series called The Unveiling. It's on the book of Revelation, and we're doing chapter one. We're, we've just started this, and this first sub-series is called Do Not Be Afraid. And my sermon is called Rolling Stones for reasons that I hope uh, will become obvious. Um, 
We're looking at chapter 1 of Revelation, verses 4 through 6. Actually, 4 through 8, but I'm just looking at 4 through 6. And uh, that verse says, John says to the seven churches, he says to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne. This is very grandiose. You can see it's very up there in the clouds. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. And the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. It's very cosmic and, and big. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and has made us to be priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And uh, I've been thinking about a lot of stuff. This book has really opened my mind about a lot of stuff that I didn't know. And I've been very excited uh, as we've gone through this. I was dreading doing Revelation, but since we started doing it, man, I'm so excited about this. And I just keep thinking about all these really cool things that I've never really thought much about before. And last week, Greg was talking about Christ's transcendence and and God's transcendence and and God as the one who is and who was and who is to come, this everlasting, big, cosmic God, and that Christ is that. And and just that that, uh, uh, otherness, that's what transcendence means. It means the otherness of God. And, And so philosophy, it's called ontology. It's the study of being. It's the study of existing things. And God is different than all these other existing things. He's transcendent. He's outside of at all. But what's fascinating is God is also the opposite of transcendent. uh, And we call that imminent. He is intimate. He is imminent. And and that's the closeness. That's the part of God that's right there with us. It's he, he's in the mud with the pigs. That's that's kind of how imminent God is. And you see that even here in Revelation, uh, we see that He is the first and the last. That's that, that's that transcendence. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Uh, I am the one who who is and who was and who is to come. I am the I am. That's the transcendent part of God. But He's also not only the I am, but the Lamb. And that's very imminent. That's very close to us. I mean, a lamb is just this innocent, vulnerable, fluffy, little temporary creature. It doesn't get much more imminent than that. And God is both. And, uh, and you see that in the rest of scripture where God is this unspeakable name, Yahweh. You can't even pronounce it. It's just this so other that you can't even name God kind of thing. And he comes to Moses shrouded in a cloud because he's so other and Moses can't see him. And yet he's also Emmanuel. He is also God with us. He is this babbling baby vulnerable to the world in a manger. And what's interesting as I've thought about this is I've thought that, you know, in, in a very smaller scale, a smaller, I call it ontological range between transcendence and imminence, we also have an ontological range between transcendence and imminence. Uh, for sure, we're imminent. I mean, we are God's creation. We're, we're creatures that God has made. So we are made from dust. We are the earth. We are made from dust. We are flesh and blood. We're susceptible to decay, uh, just like everything else. It doesn't mean that we're bad because we're dust and flesh and blood. In fact, we're very good, God said, when he made us. In fact, we're so good that God was willing to become one of us. That's how good we are. And so to say that we are flesh and blood, we are dust, a lot of people will say, oh, we're just dust, as if that's a bad thing. No, that's a good thing. God loves our dust. That's awesome. Uh, But 
we're more than dust also. Because that dust that God made us from, it says in Genesis that God breathed his own breath into that dust. There is something more than just the dust. Uh, Paul says that, yeah, we are flesh and blood. And nobody talks about our flesh and blood more than Paul does. I mean, he obsesses about how human we are. But even he talks about the fact that in some way we are also united with Christ in these heavenly realms. Yeah, we're susceptible to decay, but he anticipates a future body that is not susceptible to decay. And he says that that future body will be such that that body will judge the angels. And so, yeah, we are susceptible to decay, flesh and blood, but we're also united with Christ and we're going to do these transcendent things like judging angels. I don't know exactly how that works, but we're definitely more than just flesh and blood and dust. And I think that's why the story of God in the scriptures, it's a redemption story. It's not a story of uh, God making a first draft of something, crumpling it up, throwing it away, and then trying to make a better version of it. He doesn't throw any of us away. Because that first draft, even while we were still sinners, Paul tells us, when we were against God, we were hostile toward our creator, even then that God loved us with this unsurpassable love. He is not going to throw us away. He is going to redeem us because we have something in us that is profoundly precious that transcends the dust. There's something there that is better and more important than the dust. The dust is good. We're not saying that the dust is bad. It's just that we are more than just that. Uh, and, and I think that's also why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.16, he tells us when we greet people, when we see people, regard no one from this earthly point of view. That is, see everybody by the fact that they are more than just their flesh and blood. There is something sacred there. There is something more there besides their flesh and blood. And I think that that's so important because... As I've thought about this, I feel like one of the primary tactics of the enemy is to attack that sense of otherness inside of us. It's to attack that sense of something more inside of us. It's to get us to focus on just the weakness and the vulnerability and the, for lack of a better phrase, the lameness of being a person. And we do so many lame things and, and we're so... Uh, animal-like and we're so hostile and we do so many ungodly things. And so it's easy for us to forget that we have something very godly in us also, that we have this breath of God in us. And I think that that's one of the tactics of the enemy is to get us to not pay attention to that godly part of us. And that's what I think is so fascinating about the book of Revelation so far. It's one of many things is that this is a letter. It's written to these local congregations. It's written to Chapel Hill Church in Egan. It's written to Covenant Church in St. Louis Park. It's written to Woodland Hills in Maplewood. It's just written to these local communities like us. And yet, the letter talks about this really mind-boggling, cosmic, grandiose thing that God is doing in the world and in reality. God is turning everything upside down and is overthrowing this kingdom of darkness and is transforming the world into the way that he wants it. And yet he does all of this cosmic grandiose stuff through these little ho-hum local churches. And I just think that that's so fascinating. And that's why he says in this verse, he says that he has made us to be a kingdom of priests. We are priests because we are doing that godly work in the world. We, we are the ones through which these local whole home churches like us 
We are the ones through which God is doing these really grandiose big things. It hinges on our work in the world. He has made us a kingdom of priests. And that's why, I mean, (laughs) the enemy is going to fight against everything transcendent in us. The enemy seeks to steal, kill, and destroy any sense in which we are something more than flesh and blood. That's what the enemy does. And the priest then has to, this is the battleground. The priest fights against all of that by illuminating, by reviving, by tereoing that sacred part of us, that, that breath of God inside of us, that something more that we have. The, the priests of God's kingdom, they're always working to revive that and to get people to see that something more that we uh, are. But that's the, that's the battlefield right there. And I think that a big part of being a priest in God's kingdom is confronting the lies of Satan that wants to diminish that sense of otherness inside of us. And so, for instance, you know, I did a lot of work in mental health. I worked in chemical dependency. And uh, I would, you know, interact with people who were destroying their lives through these chemicals. And I remember having a, a common sort of interaction with people where they would justify their behavior by saying something along the lines of, well, I'm only hurting me. And, um... Well, first of all, that's not true because usually they had loved ones that they're hurting also. And also there is usually collateral damage for you know, them getting the drug that they had that that hurt people as well. But even if you just take it on its face value and you say, I'm only hurting me, that is a lie of Satan because you are valuable. It, it matters that you're hurting you. It's not insignificant that you're hurting yourself. You are a precious person potential child of God. You're sacred. You have the breath of God in you. And that a priest then confronts those types of lies. Uh, you see this in commerce. You know, I, I did some entrepreneurial stuff and some business stuff in, in, uh, a long time ago. And I saw some really shady deals. And I saw some people screw, screw other people over. I saw employers screw employees over. I saw unions screw over union members. I saw all sorts of stuff. And you hear this refrain, and you've heard this too, I know. It's just business. <laughs> that is a lie of Satan. That, because it's not just business. It's life. These are people that you're interacting with. These are people who are precious. These are people who are made in God's image. There is no just business. There's life. And business is just a part of life. And, and that is a lie of Satan. Um, I watched a documentary uh, about a serial killer And I don't know, well, I guess I do know why I watch it. Because I do want to understand how Satan can uh, just corrupt people's minds. And so I I do want to know why people do what they do. And I remember watching this serial killer documentary. And this this guy, he he, uh, was talking about one of the women that he killed. And he said, well, she was just a prostitute. And again, (laughs) no, she's not just a prostitute. She is a woman whom Christ loved so much that he suffered and died for. She had the breath of God in her. She had the potential of being a child of God. Nobody is just anything. Nobody is just a grandma. I'm, nobody is just a felon. Nobody is uh, just a housewife or just a worthless drunk. In the kingdom of God, nobody is just a. There are no justas in the kingdom of God. Here's some harsh truth, though. If God is not real, if God does not exist, then we are just us. And so that's why the kingdom of God is such good news. 
Because when the kingdom of God comes, and, and if this is true, if Jesus really rose from the dead, then that means nobody is just a. We are all priests. We are all potential children of God. We are all these sacred things. Um, but it's weird because I, I, I encounter, even in myself, but especially in the church as well, I, I encounter these feelings of insignificance. It doesn't matter what I do. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter anything about me. It just doesn't matter. People have this attitude. I, I don't matter. But the fact is, is that you do matter. You are a priest of the Most High God. That's, that matters. In fact, uh, God's entire mission that he's doing in the cosmos, this grandiose big thing, he chose to do through his local churches. And that means that it all hangs on you and me and us. But you're part of that. And so, yes, you matter absolutely. God is transforming the cosmos through you and me. We matter. And as priests, we attack the lies that say that we don't matter. We attack the lies that say we're just a this or just a that. Uh, we attack the lies that we are just flesh and blood because we are more than that. We are uh, potentially children of God. Um, but it's interesting because this idea of being a priest of the Most High God and being a, a nation of priests, uh, you can tell it's important to Satan because the priestly role has always been vulnerable to corruption and it's always been vulnerable to just being perverted in its role. And Jesus, when he comes through the Gospels, the one group that he's most hostile to are the Pharisees and the teachers and those in the synagogue. And, and he says this in, in Matthew 23. He says, look at these teachers and these Pharisees. We got to do what they say because they have the authority. But hey, don't do what they do because they are hypocrites. They don't practice what they preach. They put heavy burdens on other people, but they're not willing to help at all. And then he tells his disciples, you are not to be like them. You have one teacher. There is one person above you, and that is the Messiah. And you are all brothers and sisters. In Luke, uh, the disciples are arguing over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus basically confronts them saying, this is, enough, this is satanic what you're saying right now. In the kingdom of heaven, you are all brothers and sisters. Uh, you should be competing to see who can outserve the other. That's what you should be competing for. You are all the same. You have one teacher, the Messiah. You are all brothers and sisters. And they started arguing about it again even after Jesus said that. So this is something, this idea that I'm going to be on top and I need to move my way up in this hierarchy, that is satanic and Jesus fights against it. And I think that the church did all right with it because you look at the church in the book of Acts and wow, they did some amazing things and they shared all of their possessions and it was beautiful, but it doesn't take long for that to go away. I, I was reading this uh, article by Scott Aniel. And he was talking about the church at Laodicea. And this is the same church that we're going to encounter in uh, Revelation chapter 3. And, uh, but this is in the year 365. So this is 300 years later after the book of Revelation. And what was happening, this is before social media. This is before the printing press. And if you wanted to spread a message, this is one way that you could do it. <laughs> I think it's kind of funny. But you could put in these propaganda songs into the church hymnals. And so, like, you could be singing, and all of a sudden, you might sing something like, get your clothes washed at Johnson's. What? Where did that come from? And, uh, you know, and so these heretical sort of thinkers would slip in these hymns that people would start singing, and it had all this really bad theology. 
And so what the church did is they said, well, we can't let the congregation choose music anymore. But the problem is, is that people would still start singing these songs. And so then the church is like, well, we can't let the congregation sing anymore. Here's what we're going to do is we're going to have specially designated priests and they will do the worshiping for the congregation. And that way we can select the songs and we can make sure we have quality control. And, uh, and so it, it sort of devolved into this thing where you would go to church and you would sit in the pews and it was just this dark sort of pew and it was kind of dank. And, and then the specially designated priests would be up on this platform by the stained glass windows and they had all this colorful light shining on them. And they would sing to God because they were closer to God than the peasants. And to be honest, the church always wrestles with that temptation to have specially designated people and the normal common peasants. Even a church like Woodland Hills. I'm up on a stage with light. And, and that's something that we have to fight all the time. I really appreciate Woodland Hills because we have team teaching and we're always looking for new voices to put up here. And we're always looking for new ways for people to get involved. And it's not just a celebrity hour. It's, it really is a team of people who are working. But even we have to fight against these temptations. The word that's called this hierarchy of churches, it's called sacerdotalism <laughs> or sacerdotalism or sacerdotalism it's, it's sometimes pronounced. And it's a great word. Uh, I love these unnecessarily complicated words. There should be a Pictionary game of words like this. That's, that's what I would say. But it's this totem pole sort of thinking where you have to be qualified to be close to God. But that is absolutely opposite of what the scriptures teach. In the scriptures, we're taught that all believers are priests. We're all qualified. When we enter into covenant with God, we are priests. We each have equal access to God. Greg... Boyd is not higher on the totem pole than you. C.S. Lewis is not higher on the totem pole than you. N.T. Wright is not higher on the totem pole than you. There are no totem poles in the kingdom of God. There are no totem poles. There is, yes, amen. We have one high priest, Hebrew says, and that is Christ the Messiah. He is our high priest and we are all priests. And it's, it's so different than this world because in this world, we live in a world of totem poles. We live in a world of qualification. If you want to do something in the world, you have to get qualified. You have to get a license. And then there are other people who have that license. And so then you need to get something better. You, you can get a high school diploma, but that's not very special. So you should probably get a college education. Well, now everybody has a college education. So you're really going to need a master's degree. Well, now more people have master's degree. So you're going to need a PhD in order to what? Get up higher on that totem pole. And now they even have something beyond the PhD. It's called the chancellor's degree because there's too many people who have PhDs. It's just this constant totem pole life. But the kingdom of God is not like that. The kingdom of God, we are all priests. And I just think that's beautiful. Um, the church, the ecclesia, literally means the called out ones. It's those who are priests. Those who are answering the call to be priests. First Peter uh, 2, 4 through 5 says this. As you come to Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to God, you also are like living stones. You are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy 
priesthood. We are all these living stones. We are living in the sense that we're always doing something. We're rolling. We're rolling stones. We're active. We're participating. We are God's hands and feet in the world, and God wants to do things in the world. So we are living, but we're also stones. We are foundations of this building, of this thing that God is doing. And Revelations tells us that this thing that God is doing is, wow, out there. It's big. It's enormous. And we are the stones that he's doing that through. And I just think that that is amazing. I mean, because I know a lot of people, <laughs> and they're not very spectacular. C- compared to what God is going to do with us, man, we're, we're kind of uh, ho-hum. <laughs> and yet somehow God is using us as these stones, these foundations of this great thing that he is doing, almost to mock Satan and his twisted perfectionism. And I, I just think it's a, a beautiful, beautiful thing. God is building something glorious through us. And, and it's so strange because humans are so fallible. And uh, it's hard to even think that we're worthy of such grandiose things. In fact, I was talking to Dan Cook, and he is a pastor at uh, Genesis Church in St. Louis Park. And we were both sharing our experiences of the first time that we led Eucharist and how we didn't feel worthy of such a sacred task. And because this is, so, well, this is the body and the blood of Christ. And, and we're leading people in this, this sacrament that has been happening since the Last Supper. And, and it's hard to feel worthy to do something so important like that. But that is the lie of Satan. Because the fact is, is that God does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called. He qualifies the called. If you feel like you are in love with Jesus, if you feel like you want to be a part of what God is doing, guess what? You're qualified. Get in there. Do it. Do something. <clears throat> and, and, and it's so fun to hear that from other uh, leaders, that they have that same struggle. Uh, and, and, and you have to overcome that because God wants you involved. God wants you to participate in this great thing that God is doing. Uh, sacerdotalism for all of its flaws, and it's, it's not what the, God, what the Bible calls us to, but I tell you what, from a worldly perspective, it is strong because you separate people who aren't as competent and you highlight the people who have better skills, and eventually you have people who are very, very skilled. And when you look at the churches in the world, the sacerdotal churches, wow, they're amazing by worldly standards. People fly from all over the world to see some of these churches. And and some of the music that's created by these professional worshipers over the years is legendary. But it's not what God is doing. God is using the ho-hum church of normal people to do this glorious, glorious thing. And it just makes sense. It's uh, the way that I, I, I say this sometimes when I'm reading the Bible. That's so God. That's just so God. And, and it is. It's so God to use the ho-hum local church to do such a glorious thing. Because uh, we, we read this in 1 Corinthians 1.18. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Oftentimes, God uses these weak and foolish things to do these amazing things. And the cross is is the number one example of this. And I tell you what, as foolish and as weak as the cross looks, I mean, God dying on a cross, that's pretty foolish and weak. I tell you what, when the resurrection happened, the cross no longer looked so foolish and weak. And I think as priests in God's kingdom, we live by the conviction that at Jesus' unveiling, 
when Jesus returns in the cloud, when Jesus appears, the parousia, when Jesus appears, I think also the fact that he used our whole home church and little old us to accomplish his will will also look glorious in the same way that the resurrection makes the weak and foolish cross look glorious. Somehow, and I, I don't know exactly the details of how it's going to go, but somehow we believe that this gang of priests here are part of something that will somehow transform the cosmos. And I, that's, it's hard to fathom, but that's the promise. That's the call. That's what God is asking us to participate in. And it doesn't look like it. You look at the world, it doesn't look like the gang of God's priests are, are doing very much. It doesn't look like the, the, the body of Christ is uh, accomplishing this grandiose thing. It, it, in fact, it looks like the body of Christ might even be sleeping. <laughs> Maybe the, the body of Christ is... Uh, Hungover, I don't know, but it's, it doesn't look like it's doing anything grandiose, to be honest. And yet, as priests of this kingdom, we live under the conviction, under the hope that the church really is the hope of the world. Because, as Paul tells us, the church is the body of Christ. And so we continue in our priestly role. We continue to serve God with that hope and with that conviction that God will make this weak and foolish thing into something glorious. He's going to use us as living stones for something great. Jesus gives us a special vocation. You are priests. And God is going to work his plan through us. This has been the plan all along. Way back in Exodus, when God uh, first interacts with Moses, he says this to Moses. He says, you, this is Israel, will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So this is a project that's been going on a long time. Uh, and really, it's been going on longer than that. Because when you read in Genesis, uh, when Genesis sees people, his first thought is, this is my image. This is, or literally, this is my avatar in the world. This is my hands and feet in the world. I am going to do things in the world through this through this human, through this personhood. This is it. And so from the very beginning, he has called us to be his hands and feet or to be priests in the world for him. And really, the book of Revelation shows us how that all is going to culminate and come together. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing. But it's also so important that I think part of the reason why it doesn't look like it's working is because it's the number one target of the enemy. Because it's so important and it really is the battleground between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, I think Satan goes after that role more than any other thing. And we don't feel like we want to be priests. We don't feel like we are priests. There's so many stumbling blocks to embracing our role as priests. And this has been the case all the way back. This is uh, Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 14. Paul, or not Paul, uh, Moses is frustrated with the Israelites because they don't want to take responsibility and they don't want to live out his teaching. And he says this, listen, you guys, the things that I'm commanding you today, they're not too difficult for you. They're not beyond your reach. It's not up in heaven so that you have to ask, oh, who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may obey it? No, it's not beyond the sea so that you have to ask, oh, who's going to swim across the sea to get it for us and do it for us so that we may obey it? It's not like that, he says. The word, the call that God has for you, it's right there in your mouth. It's in your heart so that you may obey it. But we, I tell you what, we want to outsource that responsibility. We want someone else to do it for us. That's what we want. And Moses is just going after that impulse, that impulse to let somebody else do it 
for us. And, and there's a lot of ways that we do this. I think that rapture theology, I personally think that that is uh, a version of this. I, I don't want to take the responsibility of being a priest. I don't want to do the work of God in the world. I want God to suck me out of the world. That's what I want. I want to be up there in heaven and let whatever happens down here happen. But that's not the call. The call is that God is going to do this glorious thing through us. Uh, we are God's priests. And so, if you're a believer, maybe you, maybe you didn't even know that God considered you a priest. <laughs> maybe you, you've never heard that before. Uh, it's not something that's preached all the time, and, which is part of the reason why I really wanted to share this. And so, if you didn't know that God considered you a priest, consider this your ordination. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to your priesthood. <laughs> as, as a priest, you will find there is a job description, but it's a complicated job description, and it's kind of spread throughout the Bible. Um, but I'll say this. The job of a priest, it's not to be a good boy and a good girl. That's not the job of a priest. It's not about being little good boys and little good girls. It, it, it's, that's the Pharisees. The Pharisees loved being good boys. The Pharisees loved to show off their, their phylactery, their, their Torah that they would strap to their head and just show everybody what good boys they are. And, and they would show off their long robes and what good students they are. And they would want the good boy seats at the table. But Jesus says, don't be like that. It's not about being good boys and good girls. It's about saving the world. It's about doing what God wants to do in the world. It's not about you. It's about what God is doing in the world. And, and that's what being a priest is. It's about saving the world. It's about being Christ's hands and feet. It's about making spiritual sacrifices for God. That's what Peter tells us. Make spiritual sacrifices as a priest, as a, as a rolling stone and what are these spiritual sacrifices? I, I think you find them all over the place, but for instance, Philippians 4, 18, Paul says that we should make spiritual sacrifices of acts of love. That's a spiritual sacrifice. We should, uh, Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 13, to make spiritual sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. And then I think the ultimate spiritual sacrifice is, is Romans 12, 1, where Paul says to offer your lives, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. And so I guess I just want to leave you with this challenge. Have you embraced your role as priest? God, if you have committed to Christ, God considers you a priest now. Have you embraced that role, that job? And it doesn't have to be superhero stuff. You're not, you don't have to defeat Goliath or anything like that. It's, and it's not even uh, hot shot stuff on the stage here either. It's not this. It, as grateful as I have been, and I am, I'm so grateful for the decades ministry of, of Greg Boyd and the decades ministry of Paul Eddy. And uh, I'm just so grateful that, that, that I've been uh, connected with this church and I've seen all of the wisdom from this stage. But the fact is, is that this is not where the priesthood happens. <laughs> this is not where the priesthood happens. The priesthood happens in day-to-day -day life. It happens out there in the world, in your interactions, in, in your families, at your jobs, at the park, uh, whatever. I, I like the way that, that Rob said it last night uh, during our sermon run-through. He said that he would like to see people show up at things not as consumers, because we tend to show up at things as consumers. We tend to want to do a Yelp review at everything that we do. That's a consumer mindset. No, he says that we should show up as priests. We should enter the room 
We should enter the, the grocery store. We should enter the DMV as a priest and ask, what can I offer this place that I'm in? Where can I show people that they are something more than just a person or a justa or a justa or a justa? They are something more. That's what a priest does. A priest shows people how important they are to God. That's what a priest does. And, and, and it, happen, it doesn't happen from here as much as it happens out there. And, uh, and I think that's, that's so important. And, so the challenge is, is, are we living this out? And there's so many ways that we live it out. I just have a few verses here that I'm going to go through. For instance, Paul tells us in Ephesians 4 to build one another up. That's what a priest does, is we build one another up. And yet the world so often tempts us to do the opposite. The world tempts us to find people that are opposed to us and tear them down. And Paul says, no, that, that's not what a priest does. A priest looks to build people up. And, and that just makes sense when you realize that we are more than just flesh and blood. Philippians, Paul says that to strive to be sincere and blameless, but so often in our world, we're pressured. We have so much pressure. Instead of being sincere, we're pressured to try to be something that we're not, to pretend to be something that we're not, to please whatever that we're trying to please. And we tend to hide our flaws and pretend like we don't have any weaknesses. And that's not sincere. And that's not blameless either. Real sincerity means being who you actually are as much as you can. And blamelessness means wrestling with and fighting against your flaws and weaknesses, growing and trying to overcome things that you struggle with. That's where that comes from. Paul says in Colossians 3, are we bearing with one another? Do we bear with one another? Now, in our culture, we tend to cancel one another. <laughs> that's not bearing with them. Uh, that's, a, that's a type of killing them is what that is. And that's not what priests do. Priests bear with one another. Priests, uh, we're told in Ephesians 4, make every effort possible to keep unity. And so often, our world now today, it encourages us to try, instead of keeping unity, it encourages us to profit off of discord. It's trying to find ways to get more attention by picking the right side. I think Bill Doherty called this uh, conflict entrepreneurship. I think that's what he called it. It's just brilliant. Conflict entrepreneurship, where we're trying to profit off of discord. And you see so many thought leaders and hotshots doing this. We are not to be like that. We are called to keep unity and to make every effort to do so. Paul tells us in Philippians 4 to let our gentleness show. Boy, there's so little gentleness in the world. So often we're tempted, instead of letting our gentleness show to one another, we're tempted to show our toughness. We're tempted to show off our snark or our sass or our mockery. That's what we're tempted to show off. Paul says priests show off their gentleness, and that's totally different. I've got tons of these, and I don't have time to go into any more, but I'll say this. Ultimately, I think what it's about, Paul says in, in Philippians 1, that priests strive to live a life worthy of the gospel. And when you look at what Christ did on the cross, and when you look at everything that God did to demonstrate his love for us and the sacrifice that Christ made for us, well, I mean, are, are we doing anything worthy of that? And we're all falling short of that, of course. We can never, we can never, we can never be worthy of that great gift. But we can at least try, right? We can at least make an effort to do what he's calling us to do, and that is to be priests. That is to be his hands and his feet. That is to be his voice in the world, especially for people who don't have a voice. Uh, and it's not perfectionism. 
Sacerdotalism, that's perfectionism. This is not perfectionism. Uh, in fact, uh, what it is, is it's just a sincere aspiration to, to do what Christ has called us to do and to be who Christ has called us to be together in community. In fact, that's why our tagline is learning to love together. Because it's not about my own personal moral excellence. It's about how we're doing as a body. And sometimes, here's the magic of it. Sometimes, if somebody is failing... You know what that is? That's an opportunity for the body to shine more because that's an opportunity for us to show grace and mercy and forgiveness. You can't show those things in a community of perfect people. And, and so really, it really is about that community and, and, and being a part of that and being a priest in that. Priests live by this conviction that you, you just can't force holiness. You can't use power to get holiness. You can't use bureaucracy to get holiness. For some reason, somehow, the only way to get holiness is through this lamb-like, Christ-like love. <laughs> That's the only way to actually, I don't know how that works, but it does. That's the only way that it works, is to show love. That's the only way to get people to be genuinely, authentically holy. A lot of these reflections in this sermon today I got from a sermon by Greg. I think it was 2015. It's called The Priesthood of All Believers. It's a great sermon. I listened to it like three times. Um, but he, he has this reflection, and I've been thinking about it since I watched it. He says that I doubt that a person on their deathbed, and I have been with people on their deathbed before, and this rings true. I doubt that a person on their deathbed will think, you know, I really wish, I regret, I wish I didn't spend so much time building others up. <laughs> I wish I didn't spend so much time telling my family how much I love them. Ah, I don't think, I wish I would have, I rather, I wish I would have instead um, played video games. That's what I wish I would have done. No, no one says that. Because, in fact, they say the opposite. I've heard on deathbeds tremendous laments and griefs about how selfish people have been and about how they didn't tell people how much they loved them and how they didn't reconcile with people that they wish they would have reconciled with, but instead they hold this dumb grudge for decades. That's what I hear. Because the fact of the matter is, is that at your deathbed, when all things, all of your cards are coming together and it's the, your last hand, basically, that's when you start to realize what was meaningful and what wasn't. And the fact is, is that the only way to have real meaning in life is to attach your life to something that is meaningful. And the only thing that can be meaningful is whatever God has meant to be. That is what meaning is, is it's meant to be. And so the only way to get real meaning in your life is to connect it to what God is doing in the world. And that is what he's inviting us into. He's saying, I want you to be living stones. I want you to be rolling through life as a priest for my kingdom. And somehow through all of that, look at all these great cosmic things I'm going to do through that. That's what he's calling you to. And he's calling you to do that because everything else is ultimately meaningless. Everything else is a video game. Everything else is pretend. It's, it's, it's make-believe. It's, it's, it's fake movies. It's fake stories. It's people pretending to be something that they're not. It's, it's fake money. It's all this stuff. And the only real thing is how we treat one another. Is the only real thing. And God is calling us to treat one another like priests. And, uh, and like I said, it doesn't mean that we all have to become pastors. It doesn't mean that we have to become missionaries or thought leaders or anything like that. It, it could just be something like volunteering at the food shelf, which we have a lot of fun, by the way. I encourage you to do that. Or volunteering in the children's ministry. 
Some of the most important encounters I've had in my own spiritual walk came from volunteers at youth group, and that is so important. Or if you're not at that point where you can do that, join our sustain campaign and, and at least use your resources to fuel what we're doing because we are striving to the best of our ability to be the hands and feet of God in Maplewood and as far of a reach as God allows us to reach. Really, I think that this is such an important decision. Will you embrace your role as God's priest? He sees you as a priest, whether you do or not. So are you going to embrace that role? And, you know, if you're still thinking about that, if you're new to the faith, if you're new to this church, you know, think about it. Keep thinking about that. And one thing that you can do is you can come to our gathering groups on Monday and you can think about it together with us. You can, we can talk about it. But come there as a priest. Try to put that on. Put that hat on and pretend like you're a priest because you are a priest. You're not even pretending. You're just living out your calling. And start to do that. Maybe this is a big question for you and you need prayer. You can come forward. We have people who will pray for you. And if you want to be a part of our prayer ministry, that's another thing you can do. You can also pray online. And uh, Shauna and I will talk more about this on Tuesday on the MuseCast at 4.30 on YouTube. In the meantime, go out and love on the world as God's priests and have a blessed week.